All right, everybody, I'm going to go ahead and interrupt you. Extroverts, your time is over. Introverts, your time is now. All right, so let me uh, invite you to come grab a seat. Glad you are here with us this morning. I want to uh, just say I'm really excited for this morning. We're starting a brand new series, and we're calling it Wrestling with God. We've even got like a little, like, I don't, he's not a wrestler. I think he's like a ninja. I don't know. I don't know. This is like our little karate dude, but he's awesome. And uh, we're, we're excited for him to guide us through this Wrestling with God series. So, well, hey, uh, we are taking a look at uh, areas where we wrestle with God. Last week, we gave you a card to fill out to say, share with us some of the ways that you wrestle with God, some of the hard questions that maybe you sit with. And I want to invite you to do that again. You can help shape this series as Pastor Dave and I uh, work through teaching to the very things that you yourselves are bringing up and saying, this is an area of wrestling for us. And so uh, I want to say that when we first sketched out the beginning of the series, we kind of had this idea that we would approach it from the framework of reasons to believe, like overcoming obstacles to faith. And besides feeling cheesy, we just felt like that has an over-focus on having the right answers. And the more I, I tend to look at the scriptures, the more I see that characters learn to trust God without the answers. In fact, faith develops far more like a wrestling match than it does studying for an exam. And uh, this is very true in my own life as well. I also want to say sometimes church feels like the last place that you might feel like you want to wrestle with questions and aspects about who God is. And, And it can be very isolating or alienating to live with those questions in church. Like when we sit with the questions, how can God allow this? Or why do I feel what I feel? And the questions go on. And sometimes the more questions we have, the more alienated we feel as if spiritual maturity was reduced to having the answers but as we'll see today, it's actually, it's in the wrestling that we most often discover God for who he is. It's in the wrestling that we learn to see his face. And so today, we are going to begin this series by learning how to wrestle, learning how to engage a wrestling match with God, and how to do it well. So, if you have a Bible, please turn it with me to Genesis chapter 32, verse 22. Genesis 32:22, and read along with me. In fact, as we dive into the story, I have to tell you that this very weird story you're about to hear is the turning point of Jacob's entire life. Jacob is our chief wrestler. He is the one we learn how to wrestle from because he has a match with God in the desert. I would love to spend six weeks just going through Jacob's story and his lessons, but we're going to look at four realities today that set the stage for the rest of the series so that we can learn how to wrestle well. Read with me. Genesis 32. That night, Jacob got up and took his two wives. Maybe a problem already in the narrative. (laughs) Jacob got up, took his two wives and his two female servants. The story gets worse. And uh, and his eleven sons and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. And after he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all of his possessions so that Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until daybreak. 
And when the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched. And as he wrestled with the man, or as he wrestled with the man, then the man said, let me go for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go until you bless me. The man asked him, what is your name? Jacob, he replied. I'm sure he's more like, Jacob! <laughs> right? Because <laughs> he's in pain at this point. I wasn't calm. And the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? Then he blessed him there. And so Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, It is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. And the sun rose above him. As the sun rose above him, he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. And therefore, to this day, the Israelites do not eat the tendon attached to the socket of the hip, because the socket of Jacob's hip was touched near the tendon. Okay. Weird story, right? Like, what is going on here? Well, uh, to understand this story, I think the only way to, to, to help it make sense is to tell you the story of Jacob so far. And up to this point, Jacob as a character in Genesis is a schemer, a manipulator, a deceiver. He's not a good guy. He's not a hero. And to grasp the power of the moment, we have to go back to the beginning. His story turns with a climax of conflict here that we just read, but his story actually begins with conflict. You see, Jacob's story begins with conflict with his, with his brother Esau, who is his twin, who was born seconds before him, and he, it is conflict with his father Isaac as well. See, Isaac is the father of Jacob and Esau, and Isaac comes from a family uh, whose father is Abraham. And Abraham had received a promise that through his offspring, God would bless all the nations of the world. And so there's this promised line that God would choose the child within this family that would carry this messianic line. If you want to learn more about the story of who the Messiah is, you can grab the podcast from a couple weeks ago. We spent a lot of time on that. And so uh, what happens is God has already declared that the promise of this coming Savior, this Messiah, would come through Abraham, now Isaac, and then God chooses Jacob to bear this line. And, and there's this promise that the older brother will serve the younger. And so it goes against the culture of the day to pass on the birthright and the blessing to the elder son. And instead, God has singled out Jacob. Now, eventually, Isaac gets pretty old. He loses his sight. And he has this like crazy desire for good barbecue. And so he sends his son Esau out into the fields and he says, go bring me some fresh game the way I like it and come back and I'll bless you, okay? I'll pass the blessing to you. Well, Rebecca, the mom of the twins, hears this and sends Jacob in and says, Jacob, you've got to put on some like goat skins. You've got to like butch up so you can look like your brother and like come across hairy and I'll, I'll like I'll grill and I'll give you some food and then you'll go into dad and you'll pretend to be Esau so you can get the blessing. 
And so the plan works and Isaac is duped and, and he blesses Jacob. But as he does it, Esau comes into the tent and he's like, what's going on here? You just gave the blessing away to Jacob. And Isaac trembles right in this moment because he realizes something. He realizes he has been confronted not by just a deceiver, but by God using Jacob's deception. See, Isaac had to accept that the blessing went to Jacob because he realized he's been pitting his preference for his son's like manly man style and his food over Jacob. And so now God has outwitted Isaac and the blessing's gone to Jacob. And so Isaac accepts it, but Esau refuses to accept this. And so he chases Jacob. He determines to kill him. And Jacob now, in turn, flees to his uncle Laban's sheep and camel ranch. And he goes there to try to find a wife. And he's running for his life. And he literally goes on the lamb. And first service like that more. They're a little bit more punny, I guess. Anyway, um, I tried it again. Sorry. So, uh, and, and, and as we catch up uh, in the story of Jacob, what's happening is there, he, he, is, he, he meets his match in his uncle Laban, who deceives him, who schemes against him. See, Jacob falls in love with one of his daughters, and uh, yes, it's his cousin, so weird too. But he falls in love with one of, the, uh, one, one of, the cousin, one of, the, one of Laban's daughters, and he, he determines to marry her. And... And they party at the wedding. Apparently, like, ancient Near Eastern wedding parties are legit because he does not recognize who he actually marries until the next morning. And so the next morning, he wakes up and he goes, it's not Rachel, it's Leah. And so he ends up in indentured servitude for another seven years. And, it, and so he's, he's tricked, he's deceived. And eventually God prospers him and says, it's time for you to go home. It's time for you to face Esau. It's time for you to go back to the land that I've promised to you and your offspring and deal with your conflict. And so... It's this place where we catch up with Jacob. And he's realized that his brother Esau has brought 400 dudes with him. And he's a bit freaked out. So he sends his, his, all of his possessions, all of his people, all of his things. And he divides them in two. And he sends hundreds and hundreds of gifts to Esau way out in front. And he reserves his family till the very end. And it's that point in the evening where he sends his family off and he stays behind. He's trying to pacify his brother with gifts and to show the vulnerability of his family so that his, his life gets spared. Now, it's at this point that Jacob is totally alone and he has no more cards to play. He's vulnerable. He doesn't have another move to outwit, scheme, or manipulate his brother So there's nothing left in his playbook. He's alone and in the dark about to face what he thinks is his greatest conflict, his brother Esau. But what he gets instead in that darkness is a God who assaults him. Now, I don't know what theology you came in with this morning. I don't know what picture of God you came in here with. But let me suggest to you that it may be missing a component if it doesn't have a God who sometimes makes a move for a takedown. A God who will assault. And so, here we are. 
we have this God who confronts Jacob, who goes after him. And all week, this, this line from C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia kept coming to my mind. You may be familiar with it. There's this line, it's a children's story, and so he, he uses this kind of allegorical symbolism to explain Christian faith. And there's this lion in the book, Aslan, and he figures Jesus. And so these kids, the Pevensies, are about to meet this great lion and they're having a conversation with a beaver about it, and uh, they ask the question, is he safe? And the beaver replies, he is not safe, but he's good. Remember this line? He's not a tame lion. He may not be safe, but he's good. So it's here in this conflict with a good but not safe God that I want to unpack just four principles this morning that we get from this text about how to wrestle well. The first thing I want to show you is that we tend to meet God when we are alone and in the dark. See, it's here alone that Jacob is most vulnerable. He's in the dark and he knows it. He's run out of options and he feels now that he is at the mercy of his brother Esau. But God has to wrestle with him so that he recognizes that first of all, he is not at the mercy of Esau. He's at the mercy of God. All of his life he's been scheming and manipulating as if he is only at the mercy of these people that he can somehow outwit and control. But God says, you are actually at the mercy of a sovereign God. The, the, the Esau's and Isaac's and Laban's, they're not sovereign, but I am. And it's here in this, this place where he's alone and he's vulnerable that he meets with God. And, and frankly, isn't that so much the way that our wrestling begins? When we're kind of in the dark, when we sense that we can't see clearly. In the dark, all you can see is what's right in front of you, if that. And, and by the way, it happens alone. It has to happen alone, this wrestling, because no one can do wrestling for us. It, 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 it is an encounter with God if it's only secondhand wrestling. See, for Jacob, he's heard the stories of the God of his father, Abraham and Isaac. But here, in the dark and in this isolation, that God goes from being a character in his grandpa's story to being an assailant in his life. He becomes a personal and living reality in his life. And so it's when no one else is there that we are faced with a God who will wrestle us and who will allow us to wrestle with him. When I first moved to Portland, I came here for Bible college. I came here because I, I wanted, I uh, felt a, a sense of calling to ministry and to pastor, but I came uh, to Bible college pretty naive. And I came moving away from my comfort zone, my family, my church, a lot of the things that probably felt like identity to me. And I, I came expecting some answers and some confidence and some certainty. But instead, what I got was a lot more doubt than I bargained for. I came, and, and this is very common in many ways, that that first year of college is, can be shattering to faith. And for me, it was a moment where my faith became undone. Uh, there's this power of being alone. There's this power to surface questions that you never really had asked before. And that was what was happening to me. Uh, that 
there's this driving question of what if none of this is like real? What if this is just not legit? That, that was just so strong. There was a possibility there that it just was not true. And that possibility that everything I staked my life on, my reputation on, my relationships on, before that point, felt like it, it, it could crumble if this was false. And, and so I was there alone without the security of people who I had previously trusted, and I was in the dark without the security of answers I thought I was going to get in this place where God was drawing me out to wrestle. And see, it's in this isolation, it's in this confusion that we find what we're really wrestling with. See, Jacob thought his biggest problem was Esau. He thought his biggest problem was coming at him tomorrow with 400 guys. But instead, what his biggest problem was, was God in the night right there with him. Who is this that's assaulting me in the dark? See, he had to learn that My biggest wrestling match isn't with Esau, it isn't with Laban, it is not with my dad, it is with God. And it's there in this desert darkness, this real place of wrestling where God draws us out alone to show us where our conflict really lies. See, my own story, I I had this issue and that was that I was I couldn't quite get my head around the fact that God was trustworthy, that he was credible, that this was true. And I, I just didn't quite trust him. And so instead, what I was aiming for was certainty. Because if I had certainty, then I had control. And if I had control, then I was in charge. And, and I came into this conflict with this reality where not only was I not getting answers, I was being faced with the fact that I didn't even have the right questions. And God let me hang in that place so I could begin to see my idols for what they were. It was the idol of certainty and control. But he was gracious enough to draw me out and to to force me to wrestle with the heart of the problem. I needed to live in this possibility that he wasn't real. You see, if you grow up in church, if you grow up in faith, in order for your faith to become I think, legitimate and real. You have to begin to come to this place of there's a possibility that it's not true. That that's there. That has to be a possibility if it's really faith. But on the other hand, if you come to faith from the angle of I've I've never known anything about God, I haven't had God in my life, then you have to begin to wrestle with the possibility that maybe God is real. That there is truth to this message about Jesus. And you begin to weigh what makes sense here. What makes the most sense? And so it was there with that real possibility that it wasn't real, that I had to deal with for God to use that as an opportunity for me to learn how to trust him without control and certainty. Do you think that that might be an important thing in life? Yeah. So you have to go through the wrestling And I want to encourage you this morning that it's up to you and I to engage those moments. It's up to you and I to actually engage the wrestling match that God draws us into. So are are there places for you that feel like dark? They just feel like, I'm I'm wrestling in the dark and I, I don't know 
See, if you're here today and you sense like, there's something wrong with me because I'm wrestling with God. There's something wrong with me because I have these, these questions and this tension about my faith. Then what I want to say to you is don't be shocked because God already knew that you had a conflict with him. This is a great opportunity for you to figure out that you do too. And in fact, this is a moment for him to draw you out and show you who you are and show you who he is. More about that in a second. So just want to ask you this morning, will you wrestle in this series? Will you wrestle and engage those challenging aspects of who he is and who you are? Because without the wrestling, we have to ask the question, am I really dealing with God? Uh, Am I really engaging him? Is he really getting me in the engagement? And so when we do engage that, we find that he hasn't like just invited us to tea, but he's, re- he's invited us to a match, okay? But there's, there's this other aspect of wrestling, that there's more to wrestling in terms of what it reveals. And that's the second thing here this morning, that, that we learn in the wrestling how to hold on to God. One of the little known facts about my life um, that I try not to make known because it's a bit embarrassing is that I donned the wrestling singlet in my sixth grade year of middle school. And uh, bought the shoes, like had the gear, uh, and that was that was the last time I ever did that. And uh, and my very first match, I'll never forget, was this this moment where I realized how incredibly outmatched I was because I was tall in sixth grade. I was so tall I had to like hunch to be like in a conversation uh, level with other people. And now I've been outgrown by other people. <clears throat> who take the stage regularly. And, uh, and I'm re- regularly told that I'm not that tall. So, um, and so we, we, we get there and I realize that I am scrawny and tall and I have been matched with a muscular short person who's an eighth grader and has been at this for a while. And like, the coach says, like, don't get hurt. And I'm like, what? Like, as I'm like going out there. And I... I don't remember a lot about this moment, but all I know is after that whistle blew and there was that hand slap, the next thing I knew was I was walking off the mat and I knew that my wrestling career was over as soon as it started. I was dazed, I was hurt, and I had a whole new confidence that there was another sport for me. And, uh, and it's in the midst of the wrestling that we find out like, who we are and what we're about. I found out really quickly, like, I don't want this. Like, I, I don't want to hurt for this. I don't want to even touch that dude. So, I, like, I, I don't want it enough to do this again. And so I'm not going to do it again. And so when we wrestle with God, it shows us what, what we're after. And it was alone in my own darkness in college that I realized I wasn't after God for God. I was after God for what he could offer in terms of certainty, which would put me in a place of mastery rather than being mastered. And so uh, God loved me too much to leave me there. And I want to tell you today that he loves you too much to leave you wherever you are. He accepts you as you are, but he loves you too much to let you remain there. And so let's look at what's happening in this passage. It says that they remained in this conflict till daybreak. So it starts at night and it goes till daybreak. This is a fight for Jacob's life. It means that they're evenly matched. He's exhausted. He's probably bruised, but he isn't giving up. See, something happens. See, Jacob's assailant touches his 
hip. There's some scholarly debate about exactly where he was touched in the groin area. I mean, you can imagine some guys in like tweed coats and their elbow patches being like, where was it exactly that he was touched? And it's like, I don't really want to know. Um, they don't quite understand these words, but we know that he was touched in this area and it hurt him and he limped. And so uh, it totally disjoints him. him. He's wrenched. He's in pain. And so what does this say about the God who wrestles us? What does this say about who he is? First of all, it says that this whole match, he's been keeping his strength in reserve. This whole match, he's been keeping his power in his back pocket. See, he lets us wrestle him, but he lets us wrestle him in his weakness. He refuses to overwhelm us with his strength, and he could do so. And a lot of us don't like wrestling with God because we just want God to just show up in an overpowering way and just bring all of his glory in such a way that it demands none of our trust. Would you just drop something from the sky, God, so that I could know? It's like, no, I'm approaching you in my weakness. I have strength and reserve. I'm not going to be forced to show my whole hand. And so it's here that he realizes I'm wrestling with somebody that's not just a man. See, so many of us, we we, we really want God to just like dump his power on us, but he only lets us encounter him with his strength and reserve. But as soon as God decides, I'm going to show a smidgen, a tiny bit of my strength in your life, Jacob, there will be no more confusion. It, it, It doesn't say that the wrestler like punched him in that hip area it says that it was a touch and that's an accurate translation it's a touch and with this light touch Jacob's undone he's disjointed and Jacob moves now from trying to pit his will against God in his strength to now holding on to God for his life He goes from trying to conquer God with his strength to holding on to him in the utter desperation of his weakness. And that's the change that Jacob experiences. Jacob moves from from this place of I'm trying to control all things in my life and I can outwit, outscheme, outmanipulate to now I am holding on for dear life to God for his blessing. So what's important about this? Two things. This point. First of all, it means that God never gives us the full picture of his power and his strength. He never gives us the full picture of his wisdom. He never lets us see all of his cards, but he does give us the full picture of his character. He gives us the full picture of his character when we look at Jesus Christ, who comes not in overwhelming power, but in overwhelming humility and overwhelming weakness. But it's in that weakness that he wrestles down our worst enemies, sin and death. And so when we wrestle with this God, we have to start with the assumption that there's like parts of him that he's just not showing. There's, there's this assumption that he's got strength and reserve. There's more going on than he's showing. There's more going on than I'm seeing. And the second thing that this means for us is that this part of the story shows us that wrestling with God is really learning how to hold on to God in the wrestling. Jacob says, I'm not letting go of you. Sometimes we're tempted to to wrestle away from God, like get away from me, God, or we're tempted to, to wrestle against God. But Jacob teaches us how to wrestle for God. He says, I'm not letting go of you. All I want is you. What I want is your face. What I want is your name. What that means is I want to know you. 
And so for my own story, I was ultimately in this place where I found that my experiences of doubt were, were, were taking things away from me that were less than God so that I could learn how to hold on to God. And the trade-off was worth it. The trade-off was worth it. I had to be willing to lose something in order to gain Him. And it was worth it. You have to have this willingness to lose, to hit this point where after looking at all the other options and say, you know what, I can't have beauty, I can't have meaning, I can't have a story that's bigger than me if I don't have you, and I need you. And so when we wrestle, we learn how to hold on to Him, even if there's things about Him that just don't make sense. We hold on to Him because in the wrestling, we learn that He's far worthier than any other desire and any other goal and any other aim. So we gladly give up our agenda so that we can hold on to Him. And I mean, why not hold on to Him? Why today wouldn't you hold on to Him? What is it about His character? What is it about His person and His work? It would say, yeah, it's not worth it. What does it look like to hold on? More on that in a second. In fact, that's actually this next point. What does it look like to hold on to him? What it looks like to hold on to him, friends, is to recognize that in the wrestling, what we gain is intimacy with him. Sometimes we expect to gain information from him or about him, but his greatest desire is for us to gain him, to gain intimacy and relationship with him. And so what's Jacob asking for? What's he asking for when he's holding on for dear life? with his hip undone. What's he saying? Bless me, right? Please. I've been working at my own strength to acquire blessing, and it's not working out for me. I have no security in it. What I need is your grace in my life. I need you to do it, not because I'm deserving of it, but because I won't let go of you. I'm clinging to you. I'm clinging to your grace in my life. And so I need you to bless me. Tell me who you are. I want your identity. I want your name. That's another way of saying, show me your character. Show me your essence. And so what he gets is blessing. What he gets is face to face with God. We live in an information age, right? We live in a season and a place where in world history you can get anything you want. If you want to know it, it's there. Google it, and it's like it's your information immediately. And it's pretty cool, especially when you're trying to figure out like who that actor is on that TV show. It's like, I've seen that guy before. I need IMDb right now. And it's really convenient. But what happens when we import that model into the church and we start to make the assumption that spiritual vitality, spiritual maturity is really about having that information at our fingertips. If I can really have the right answers, if I can fill in the blank, I am a mature person. It's consumerism with information. It's If I can acquire more data, I will be more mature in my faith. And so what happens is if we agree with something, we are instantly mature with it within this model of spirituality. But when this is our model for what it means to have a vital faith, our wrestling with God becomes a mere pursuit of answers and information. It leaves relationship off the table. It leaves trust off the table. It leaves obedience off the table. 
And so instead of being shaped by living in the questions and learning to trust a person, we're just shaped by information. And that leads to what we find in the New Testament relating to Jesus as a group of Pharisees. And so instead of getting a lecture, what does Jacob get? He gets an encounter. There's a personal encounter. Now Jacob asks lots of questions and he doesn't get them answered. He says, I want your name, and he doesn't get his name. We know it because we read the whole Torah, and you get to Exodus chapter 3, and Moses gets God's name. It's Yahweh, and he meets him in this burning bush. But Jacob doesn't get that yet. And he also says, I want your face. And there seems to be this preoccupation with daybreak happening. And, and some of the commentators that I read this week said that the issue around daybreak was the fact that God is wrestling him in the night so that Jacob won't be obliterated by his face in the day. That to see his whole face would be too much. And this is why in Exodus 33 and 34, Moses says, I want to see your face. And God says, you'll see a smidgen of my back while I declare my name and my attributes to you. And in other words, the commentators are saying, you can have a part of his face, but you can't have the whole. And so at the end of this section, Jacob says, I've seen God's face and I've lived. I've seen God face to face and I've lived. And so he renames the place. He says this is Peniel, which is face to face in Hebrew, and El, God, I've seen him face to face. And so I've lived. And what he's saying here is he's shocked. He's saying, look, I've seen the holy and I've lived. The unholy has come into the presence with the, with the holy. He said, I know I'm not holy. I'm a schemer. I'm a manipulator. And yet I've gotten so close to God. I've gotten so close to the holy and I've lived. What's going on here? I didn't deserve it. I should have died. And what he's expressing is he's saying, through God's grace, he spared my life. I've gained intimacy with this God. And it's amazing. It's such a significant place that he, he has intimacy with God and he names the place after it. But not only that, he gets a new name. Jacob walks away from this event as Israel. His name is changed. See, it starts as Jacob, and Jacob has gotten bad press. It, it means deceiver, grasper of the heel, supplanter. But now God says, I'm giving you a new name, which means that you've struggled with God and mankind and overcome. That name itself is a sermon all by itself. But the point here is that he has a new name, which means he has a new identity, which means he's called to a new character, and this will yield a new life pattern. See, when you come close to God... Not only do you know him, but you're changed and you know yourself in a new way. See, wrestling doesn't just lead us to God's face. It leads us to a new identity and a new way of understanding my own life. And the only kind of way I can think to illustrate what happens when you get so close to someone that you change is marriage. Like, if you want a marriage where you just you don't change, then you just stay there and you say, it's my will that's going to be done. And that marriage isn't going to be very good and it's going to probably end, right? Or, or her will or his will be done and I'll just kind of go with it. And that's not really a, a mutual relationship of intimacy. It's really just a conquering of will, right? And so what happens in the covenant relationship of marriage is two people come together and they start to like, get really close and both of them have to change. There's, a, there's an encounter there where like, there's going to be a lot of conflict unless you invite the Holy Spirit to help you become more like Jesus together and actually are both changed. And so it's in that close proximity that all of your stuff is seen for what it is. And it's like I can either remain the same 
or have a bad relationship or we can change together. And, and so it's in this intimacy that we're transformed. And so I, what I want to do today is I want to invite you to say, go beyond looking for information. Look for his face. Look to be changed and transformed through the wrestling. Wrestling is a journey that transforms us. It's not just a transaction where we get something from God. It's an encounter where we're transformed on the inside out because we know him, we're close to him, but he transforms us. Real wrestling that holds on to God is not a wrestling that's content to be unchanged. It's willing to be remade after his word. So the question today is, will you let intimacy with God take priority over information about God as you wrestle? Because if you will, it's going to mean that you can't stay the same person. You have to be a changed person. One comment on this. I read a commentator who said that at this point, Jacob's like 97. So he's a, whatever he is, he's a senior citizen at this point. And there's some of you here, here today, you think like, I am who I am. I'm, I'm, I'm the way that I am. Is that I, is that self, a self that's constructed by God and what he wants? Or is that you being stubborn and saying, I've lived this long this way. I'll just take it home that way. Because what's so amazing is this guy's been against God his whole life. And here in his very old age, he's transformed. He becomes a different guy. What I want to say is it's not too late for any of us to be completely transformed by the grace of Jesus Christ and a relationship of him that's marked by intimacy. Keep growing. We need you to. And you need you to. Okay? And so, we let intimacy take priority. And where does this lead? Ultimately, it's going to lead to this last thing, this fourth point. We need to expect to lead, leave this wrestling match with a limp. See, Jacob's encounter with God is, is interesting because he doesn't walk away unfazed, right? Like, I, he walks away a little bit like I walked away from my wrestling match. Like, I, I, I still to this day make the excuse that I had a broken hand. My mom doesn't, still doesn't believe me. Like, I'm 31 and my mom's like, hmm, I don't think your hand was broken at all because I never saw an x-ray. I'm like, no, no, seriously, it was broken. I had to quit wrestling. Like I walked away from that event like harmed in some way. And and God uses this wound in Jacob's life to heal him. He walks away with a limp so that he can walk into his relationship with Esau, a humble man. He uses this wound to heal him. Jacob isn't unfazed. He, He walks away with his deepest longing. He's met God. He's been blessed by his grace, but he also walks away with a limp. And And we don't know how long he walks with a limp, but we know that here his walk is affected by the touch of God. He's been wrenched. He's been undone. He's been disjointed. And this is true for us. If we're going to engage this God in a match, if we're really going to allow him to transform us, it's going to mean that he's going to undo things in our life. See, uh, being willing to limp means an openness to my world not being as I prefer it. It means an openness to my world being over as I know it, to not be in my own ruler, to being marked by the sacrifice of love, to be marked by bearing the burden of other people's pain, it's going to undo you, the you that you know, so that you can gain a you that God wants you to become. 
And it's easy to keep God at a distance. And you can do it one of two, de- two ways. You can push him away and say, I don't want to walk with a limp, so I don't want you to touch me. I don't want you to get close to me. You can do it one of two ways. You can do it through irreligion, which says, I'm not going to believe God. I don't want any part of God. In fact, I'm just going to avoid living intention that disjoints me because I just don't want God. Or you can say, no, I, I, I'll just agree. I'll just agree to whatever God wants me to agree with. But I'm only going to, to relate to him through rules and simple surface agreements. And that's to push him away through religiosity. One says, I'll agree with this God, uh, but I'll only agree on the surface. The other says, I won't agree at all. Both avoid the trust and transformation that comes with living in tension and wrestling and allowing myself to be disjointed. And if I'm willing to be disjointed, that means I'm really willing to allow who he is to reshape me. And when I was wrestling with God in college, what it was about was this ability to say, I have to be willing to live with the limp of complexity and answers I don't know, and to to be okay not resolving the tensions. And there's some fallout to that. It means you have to rethink your world and talk about being out of joint. And so for some of you, you're in the same place. God's walking you out of simplicity into some kind of complexity. And it feels like you're limping. Hold on to God so you can have a simplicity on the other side of that complexity. So I don't know where you're at this morning. I don't know where God's touching your life that causes you to be wrenched, to be disjointed. Where is that place for you? Maybe it's a a how question. How is God going to put these things together in my life? Maybe it's a why question. Why is he letting this happen? Why has this happened? But let me encourage you, friends, with two things. One thing, actually. As you wrestle with the why, and as you wrestle with the how, please do so. Dive into it. Live in the tension of it. But please, friends, don't ask the why or how without asking the who. You have to understand who it is that we're dealing with. He's a God who leaves his strength in reserve, but he's also a God who meets us in his weakness. And he's good, if, even if he's not tame. First of all, as we close this, I just want to say, how do we do that? How do we do all these things? How do we pull this together? How do we actually be able to be alone and live in the wrestling? How is it that we can actually hold on to God in the midst of the wrestling? How is it that we can gain intimacy and leave with a limp and be okay with that? We see the reality of Jacob's life is ultimately that this wrestling match saved his life. It it saved his character. And he becomes a different person. And and the only way that you and I are going to begin to trust God enough to hold on to him like this, hold on to him in a way that clings to him for his blessing, to hold on to him even if it means that we become disjointed in some way, the only way we're going to do that is if we can see the greater Jacob. You see, there's a, there's a greater Jacob because Jacob himself is a forerunner to the one who wrestled at the cross for our blessing. See, the good news today is that there's a greater J- Jacob whose life wasn't spared. See, the, the holy God came, the unholy man, and his life wasn't spared for ours. See, the good news today is that Jesus Christ has endured the worst isolation. He's endured the worst darkness because he took on all the forces of evil and he took every sin into himself. And he became utterly wrenched, utterly disjointed at the cross. And he did it so that we can have God's face, so that we can see him and be in intimate relationship with him. And you can trust him in the wrestling 
because you've seen his character demonstrated in Jesus, as Jesus takes your place and, and wrestles for your sake. In fact, right now what I want to do is I want to invite us to the table this morning to take communion as a way of taking hold of the bread and the cup and saying in a symbolic way, God, I'm wrestling with whatever it is for you, but I'm holding on to you. I may be wrestling with this, but I'm holding on to you. And I can do it because when I look at this bread and I look at this cup, I recognize that I can see that you're the one who's held on to me. And you've done so at the cost of your life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for sending your son, Jesus. We thank you that in your goodness, you've taken on weakness. So that we can have you. We thank you, Lord, for uh, your spirit who helps this connect to our hearts. And we ask you to do it now in a way that we could encounter you at the table and see and believe again this demonstration of your love that you're worthy of holding on to, even if it means we walk away limping in Jesus' name. Amen.